You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So today I'm talking to David Glasgow, who is the executive director of the Meltzer Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging, and an adjunct professor at NYU School of Law. He's co-written a new book with Kenji Yoshino called Say the Right Thing, How to Talk About Identity, Diversity, and Justice. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. David Glasgow, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. One of the aspects of our work in improvisation is teaching people how to become comfortable with discomfort because you can't improvise well or wisely if you're in judgment of self or others. And you write in your new book, quote, what's new about the present moment is that, as social psychologist Jennifer Richardson points out, discomfort is being democratized. Uh, the burden previously placed on one side of the conversation is now shifting to both, end quote. This is a really interesting topic that I don't think gets discussed a lot. So I, I want to start there. Sure. So, yeah, this is really referring to the fact that conversations about diversity and identity issues have really been extremely uncomfortable for a really long time for members of marginalized groups. So if you're a woman or someone in the LGBT community or a person of color trying to navigate conversations about those topics with folks, um, there's a lot of fear associated with that, fear of retaliation, fear of being tone police, judged, ignored, dismissed, etc. And so that's been happening for a really long time. And it's only been more recently that members of more kind of dominant or advantaged groups in society um, are coming into these conversations and feeling that they too are under tremendous pressure to get these conversations right and that there could be serious consequences if they get them wrong, you know, either for 
themselves. They worry about getting cancelled or they worry about, you know, hurting people who matter to them. And so that's what Jennifer Richardson means by the democratization of discomfort is that the burden that one side used to have is now spreading over so that everybody in these conversations is now feeling intensely uncomfortable about them. But I'll also say, too, I mean, the dominant cast, I'll use as a mobile person's term for that, doesn't love having these conversations. And it, like, I mean, it is a it is a new position for them that I think a, a lot are not taking um, well to. Absolutely. Because, of course, you know, in the past, there was the option of opting out often from these conversations. People could just kind of yeah. avoid them or, you know, they weren't happening as often in, you know, workplaces or schools or what have you. So people could go about their day and rarely encounter a conversation about these topics in part because the members of the marginalized groups were too scared to to bring them up or to raise their concerns with people. But, you know, as power shifts in society and as people feel like, actually, I can voice my concerns more, all of a sudden we're confronted with these conversations that we used to be able to avoid. Um, you know, in the introduction that you and your co-author are both gay men who spent your formative years in the closet and you both became lawyers and you write, quote, compared to the silence of our youth, the law felt wonderfully loud, end quote. Uh, what, uh, talk about that. What, 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 what opened up for you in terms of the law that, that you know, wasn't at, at your disposal as a, a young man in the closet? Yeah. So, you know, the law is, um, you know, an extremely sort of blunt instrument, but it's also a really powerful one. So when you think about what the law achieves through legislation or through a, a ruling from a court is, you know, that all of a sudden in a sweeping decision, it can set policy that affects, you know, millions of people's lives. It can compensate people who've been injured. It can punish wrongdoers. And so there's something extremely powerful about, you know, both becoming a lawyer and about the whole institution of the law itself. And, you know, what we write about in the book is that, you know, growing up as gay men and not being able to even speak to people about something so fundamental to how we conceived of ourselves and our identity, you know, is just such a position of vulnerability and such a position of relative sort of weakness that, Having this tool at our disposal of I have this skill, I can actually, you know, fire off an angry letter at someone in legalese or I can, you know, file a lawsuit or what have you is is really um, a powerful skill for someone who doesn't feel like they have a voice to be able to deploy. I guess, too, and one of the things I love about this book is it's it's very kind um, and it's also it, because, like, it's hard to be a human. I mean, just straight up, right? I mean, it is hard to be a human. And then as you add on these different identities, these different layers, these disadvantages, all, all these things, it just becomes harder, um, which is, again, when you look at like Black women and medicine, right? I mean, it's just right. horrible, horrible. Um, and I'm curious, in, in terms of, so when, when we were doing our work at the University of Chicago in this area, and I was sort of being introduced to I, uh, approaches to diversity, equity, inclusion that I didn't realize could could enter through a door without shame and blame. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, like where where in your journey did that come in? Where it was like, oh, this is a this is a, a way of approaching this that probably is going to be more effective because it's not going to have people get all up in their fear brain, um, right. shame brain, or that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm curious along along the journey where that came in. 
Well, interestingly, you know, I think both my co-author Kenji Yoshino and I are both quite sort of temperamentally or by personality, the type of people who like to, you know, patiently and compassionately talk to people and take a more educative approach rather than kind of beating them over a head with a hammer type approach. So I think part of it is just, you know, who we are and how we interact with people in the world. But just speaking only for myself, another big influence on me is, you know, I've been part of growing up a few different communities of folks who have had very strong sort of moral positions where there is that internal debate of, you know, how much do you sort of shame and berate people who aren't conforming to those moral positions and how much do you take a more patient approach? And so, you know, growing up, I was very deeply embedded in an evangelical Christian community. And then I also um, was very much part of, this is going to sound very dissonant, but it was also very much part of a um, an animal rights kind of activist mm-hmm. community. And they're both obviously very distinct communities, the evangelical mm-hmm. Christian animal activist one. But what they share is, I think, a tendency among folks who are in that community. There's a There's a struggle that you have when you have a sort of minority moral sort of position that's very strongly held. You look at the world around you and you realize most people aren't living up to your standards. So, how do you engage with with that world? What posture do you take? Do you take the posture of kind of finger wagging at them and judging them and telling them how wrong they are for not not following the the correct path? Or do you do the much more difficult and challenging work of actually trying to sort of have conversations with people with all their flaws, all the things that you think are morally bad about them, but do it in a way that actually enables them to grow from it? And I think this world of DEI is a little similar to that because, Mm -hmm. again, what we're trying to do is take people from a place that they're currently at that maybe is, you know, failing ethically in some way and not treating people well and and enacting all sorts of horrible things like racism and misogyny and what have you. But there's a decision point that you have to make about how you engage with people who are doing that. And I think my experience of feeling that I didn't connect well in either of those communities that I was in, religious or activist communities, I didn't like the berating, shaming, blaming approach And I think that has really influenced the approach that I've wanted to take to this work because it's a reaction to that negative experience from when I was younger. Uh, I do want to note, there's some funny stuff in the book. (laughs) One of them, you're right. An article in The Economist suggests that the 12 most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from Human Resources, and I'm here to organize a diversity workshop. Um, (laughs) I think that is largely true. Um, And I think one of the reasons... Our work, and, and actually, we should talk about this because you meant, uh, uh, as we were talking about before we hopped on, you mentioned uh, an exercise that we co-created up at the University of Chicago called "Thank You Because," which my listeners know because it. And and, and the origin story is kind of interesting because uh, when we started working with this group, they asked us to teach them the most popular improv um, exercise we had, which is the yes and exercise. So this mm-hmm. this idea of how do we get people to place work from a place of abundance, which they immediately tied to because Richard Thaler gave us the green light in this program. So the behavioral economics idea of, you know, people's default position is to say no or do nothing. So yes, and is literally like this nudge. And the question they posed to us was, what do you do when you can't yes, and the position across from you, but you need to stay inside the conversation? Mm-hmm. And and so when, when we were looking for this sort of like, what's the nudge there and this idea around thank you, because where you thank the person, which sort of sets up the gratitude part of the brain, and then finding anything of value that in, in what they're saying. And, and simply, if someone values what you, you say, it is very hard for you not to 
approach them in a, in a warm and a giving and a curious manner. And this idea this is, I think, a fairly radical idea of battling bias with curiosity. That's, mm-hmm. that's powerful and different. Hugely powerful. And I really value hearing that origin story for thank you because, um, because, you know, I think, you know, we use it in the book when we're talking about navigating disagreements with people, because I think in that area in particular, it's very tempting for us to fixate only on the areas where there's divergence between the two parties, right? You're at kind of opposition with each other. And so you're always looking to pounce on the other person with some rebuttal to something that they've said before. And we often forget to look for those opportunities to find the areas where A, there might be common ground or B, as you say, maybe it's not common ground. Maybe it's just something you have found that's of value in the contribution that they've made, even if you still disagree with it. So I think it's immensely powerful. Uh, I was talking to my wife about it the other day, too, because she was saying the way they knew it worked first was they started using it on each other when they would have disagreements about things. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, no, we found ourselves doing it. We're using that that thing. And that, you know, because it is it, it is it is hard to navigating difference. Um, one of the, the early chapters around is around bewaring the four conversational traps. Um, uh, and I want to the, the term tone police seems to be used in a lot of different ways. And I, and I like the way that you sort of describe it here. And I want you to talk a little bit about how people use that um, in ways that are potentially unhealthy. Sure. And so tone policing really refers to kind of changing the subject from what the other person has said to how they've said it. So if someone raises something, a concern with you about you know some experience that they've had that they perceive to have been racially biased or something, What you would do is instead of engaging with them on the substance of that concern that they've raised, you would focus on, well, you know, you may have a point, but I don't like the way that you you said that to me. I found that quite rude. I thought that that was quite aggressive, et cetera. That's sort of what's referred to as tone policing. And it's one of the four, we sort of talk about the four traps as being avoid, deflect, deny, and attack. So Mm -hmm. tone policing really fits under that deflect category because it's about sort of shifting the attention over from what you're, you know, should be talking about to some other topic. And up switching also a deflect. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's different, um, there's a phenomenon of channel switching, which is where, you know, if, if someone raises a concern with me about race, for instance, and then I immediately change the subject to class or someone talks about gender and I immediately change the subject to talk about LGBTQ issues. That would be, you know, channel switching. And we point out that, you know, there's also not just switching across, like changing the channel across, you can also switch up or down. So, you know, up switching is where, you know, you make it all about our our common and universal humanity. So the most sort of common familiar example of this to most people, I think, is the all lives matter refrain, right? Someone says black lives matter, and then the response is, well, all lives matter. So you're taking it out of the concrete concern that someone's raised, and you're making it about our universal common humanity as people. But then there's also down switching where, you know, we've seen examples where people will actually say, you know what, I don't like these conversations in general about bias. Someone wants to talk about issues of bias in the community. They'll say, we should be focusing all of our attention and all this entire conversation should be about, you know, race issues or something, mm-hmm. right? And that's down, down switching. So in all forms of those channel switching, up switching, down switching, the, the critique that we make of that is that it's just not staying with the substance of the topic that someone has raised with you. It's perfectly fine if you want to raise your own 
concern or your own topic, but we think it's better to do that, you know, separately, maybe even at a later point when your point can be heard rather than trying to shut down another person. It's interesting. So this podcast is largely about uh, improvisation offstage, which is sort of the latter part of my career. But of course, I started my career as a producer at Second City and still work there. And so comedy is so hugely important to me and, and is really a great example in, in this, this, this field. Cause what, what I, what's interesting about our work. So we, we, in addition, you know, second season around for 60 plus years and our touring companies tour colleges, performing arts centers, and they do best of second city shows using material from, from the archives. And every once in a while, and not even every once in a while, every year, there is a piece of material that suddenly the college audiences are like, Nope. And it's well before anyone else has, has noticed. We'll do it in right. Chicago, we'll do it in Toronto, whatever. And it's just sort of like, oh, and it's great because that allows us to be like, all right, so what's the offending moment in here? And a lot a lot of times it's when the um, object of the joke is at someone's expense, someone from a marginalized community. And we didn't mm-hmm. we didn't realize that or it didn't it didn't it, 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 it didn't make that kind of sense to whoever was writing it. And guess what? We change it. But there's such resistance in our field where people are like, yo, you don't change. And you talk about Matt uh, Groening and the Apu character in The Simpsons and him being really resistant to this. And mm-hmm. it took the voice actor to actually come around and be like, yep, yeah, no, this, this was wrong. And, and, and really, um, I think in a sort of provocative way, but it took a lot of pushing to get there. I mean, they made documentaries about it. Absolutely. And I mean, I think comedy is a fascinating area to me. It's no, it's no um, surprise, I think, that in our chapter on apologies, it's just filled with examples of comedians as, you know, Ellen and Roseanne and Hank Azaria and Tina Fey and all these others, because I think this is an area where there is so much, um, you know, an opportunity for people to put their foot in it or, or to get in trouble for things that where they, where someone thinks they've crossed the line and they think that it's defensible. So, um, yeah, the Apu example is interesting because Hank Azaria, the voice actor ended up sort of repudiating the character of Apu and apologizing for his role playing that character because of the ethnic stereotypes that are uh, involved in it. But I do think, you know, there are, uh, this is an area where sometimes there can be, you know, respectful disagreement, right? We do say in the book as well that, you know, there it's not that we want you to sort of always just defer to the most easily offended person in the room and just say, well, if anyone doesn't like this, then, you know, it's, we shouldn't do it and we can't use it. It's more, you know, consider, you know, whether or not it actually is hurtful or harmful or inappropriate. And then if you think it's not genuinely, then you can have a respectful conversation with someone about it. And it sounds like that's what you're already doing. I found, you know, your own reaction to that of, oh, it's great that we're getting this sort of feedback, I think is extremely admirable. That's exactly the kind of attitude that we want to cultivate is instead of the immediately shutting down and all of these, you know, college kids and they're complaining all the time is actually the openness to think, oh, well, maybe, maybe we're wrong about this. We should, we should listen to them and then think about it. Yeah, I mean it's 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 also context driven. I, I I have a story in my book that I talk about where um uh we had a, it was about a year after Columbine and there was a scene not making fun of Columbine but using the 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 sort of event um and uh, a woman ran out of the audience weeping and she was a freshman at Northwestern and she had been a senior at Columbine and uh, I had this long conversation with her where I was like I she's like you got to pull that scene from the show and I'm like. It, it, it's 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 going to hit you in a way that it's not hitting anyone else, and I feel terrible that that it hits you that way. But I know the the kids who were 
murder are not the butt of the joke. It's not, it's, it's, it's using sort of genre. I, I, we felt strongly that, that it was, it was okay in this. And we could, we could have been wrong. I don't think we were. Uh, but then, mm-hmm. then there's other cases where it's just sort of blatantly like, oh no, that, that doesn't work anymore. And the thing is, as comedians, especially because both Im- Im- improvisational comedians and stand-ups do the same thing, the only way you know it works is by testing out in from the audience. So you you are going to do crap. Um, and that's awesome. <laughs> it's the scientific method. Uh, but that also means that you need to throw stuff away. And I think this right. is where um the the split for me happens is with the and it's it's usually either stand-up comics very late in their career, uh, I find. Or uh, young comedians who don't have a lot of experience who are the ones who, who don't want to throw anything away and not realize it's like, no, like if you're sticking to your one idea, you don't <laughs> you don't have a lot more ideas. There's yes. plenty of material to be done. Um, yes. And, you know, what we're really encouraging is trying to get people to move from, you know, a reflexive approach to a reflective approach. So, mm-hmm. you know, instead of so much of the avoid, deflect, deny, attack behavior, it's just a reflexive knee-jerk kind of impulse to just you know, a fight or flight type of a response. And what we want people to do is actually think a little bit more carefully about, you know, is this something that I want to do? Is this something I want to say in exactly the manner you've just described? Uh, I, there's another really funny line in, in your book. Uh, you say, quote, during the protests of summer 2020, a black colleague of ours compared speaking with white people at the time to, and this is their quote, having 40 friends wake up from a 400-year coma wanting to be briefed. Yes. <laughs> really funny. <laughs> <laughs> and terrible and so true. <laughs> exactly. It kind of gets to the point about um, how sometimes allies can actually burden the people that they're trying to help, right? Because there's also mm-hmm. a story there about the writer Damon Young, who wrote an essay for the New York Times about how he had at the same time in, in the summer of 2020 was kind of taking strolls around his liberal neighborhood and white neighbors would be sort of stopping him on his stroll and sort of saying, oh, I'm so sorry about everything that's happening in the country. And, you know, can we talk about racism and what is it, you know, what can white people do to help? And, you know, he, he was just thinking like, I just want to go on my stroll around the neighborhood. I don't want to be alone, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, you know, and he makes a sort of quip about how, you know, Wiley Coyote, uh, uh, you know, the roadrunner after sort of running away from Wiley Coyote would not have wanted to go home and explain Coyote supremacy to all the liberal Coyote in the neighborhood right (laughs) Um, so i think it's a similar thing of just you got to be a bit wary about the exhaustion factor right uh the donald rumsfeld quote keeps coming up which is funny to me because i well in a number of ways first of all as a very young person um where i grew up uh donald rumsfeld was one of the dads who uh carpooled me to swim practice oh my goodness wow how weird is that (laughs) um so that number one uh and number two I, there was this period where he got made fun of for the the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, but actually quite smart what he was talking about and made sense. Can, so can you talk about the context that you talk about that in the book? Yeah, we talk about that in our chapter on curiosity. So we point out that, you know, in conversations about identity, there are often times when there are known unknowns. So areas where you actually know that you lack knowledge, right? So let's take an example of say, you know, transgender issues. I think a lot of people might know that there is a difference between terms like transgender, non-binary, agender, genderqueer, gender fluid, but they might not exactly know what the difference is between those terms, but they know they don't know it. And so they could just Google it if they wanted to Mm -hmm. find out the answer. 
But there might also be areas of unknown unknowns, areas where they don't even realize that they lack knowledge. So a lot of people might think that they know what it means to be transgender, but they might not realize that you can actually be trans without undergoing gender confirmation surgery or Mm -hmm. without using hormones, you can still be trans, right? So that's an area where they don't even know about their own ignorance. And so the solution to both of those problems is slightly different, right? So we write in the book about how if it's an area where you know you lack knowledge, it's a pretty simple solution, which is you can actually go out and gain that knowledge. So if it's simple, like you can Google it, like I just said, or you can read books on the subject or articles or listen to podcasts like this one or watch documentaries and what have you. Whereas if it's a, an unknown unknown, you can't really do that because how do you even you know find a book about something where you don't even realize you don't know the, the, the answer to it? And so we advise that what people need to do in that situation is to just adopt a posture of radical humility when they're entering conversations, always being wary about the fact that there are areas, things that they might not fully understand. So we use an analogy from the philosopher Christy Dotson, where she tells people to imagine that you're in a nuclear physics seminar. So if I, as a non-nuclear physicist, were going to a nuclear physics seminar, even if I had done all the reading and the prep for the class... I'm still going to be really wary throughout that whole class of have I really understood this correctly? I'd be asking a lot of questions. If I were going to be sharing my own perspective, I would be doing that tentatively because I'm not sure if I'm fully getting it or not. And I think that kind of posture of humility is really useful in these conversations as well. So that when you're speaking with someone about an unfamiliar issue of, you know, let's say you're having a conversation about trans issues or gender issues and you don't really know what, what you're talking about, is just to do that same thing, right? As when you're sharing your own perspective, do it tentatively. So use I statements, you know, say thing instead of saying something like, oh, don't make this about gender, you would say, you know, I don't really see the gender dimensions of this, but I might be missing something. What do you see? You know, what, mm-hmm. you know what's your perspective on this, right? And then invite the other person's, um, listen to the other person's perspective with generosity, right? So you're inviting, like in the nuclear physics seminar, you're sort of trying to gain knowledge from the other person rather than sort of barreling in there thinking that you already know everything that there is to know. So I think this is really crucial in the sense that when we, when we lack, when we feel that we lack competency, that sets off a, a chain of, of, of reactions for all human beings in a variety of contexts, right? I mean, like we, I just had this conversation uh, the other day where I am not the um, most technically minded human being. They, we didn't have computers when I was growing up, right? That sort of thing. Um, and I, I struggle with Excel. I'll just, I'll throw it out there. Um, but at my, my, uh, uh, one of, one of my bosses at work was sort of saying, she goes, you know, the fact is though, what I know about you is actually when you, lay apart the fear and you actually get some research or maybe take a class or whatever, you're going to be fine. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're probably right. But, and I, and I'm a very curious person who works in this sort of thing. And I'm throwing up those, which means that everyone is throwing up those roadblocks and especially people who for the gender issue, just, I can see how that baffles them beyond Mm -hmm. all means because they, they, it's probably something that don't encounter I, I work with you know, a lot of trans people. I like, they are my friends. They are like, and, and even I, and even in that, I don't think I understand the whole, all dimensions. So I think that, that just understanding that gives you empathy for the source 
right? That you talk about a lot in the book, which is something that's I think unusual um, in 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 these discussions. Um, but then then on the other side, em- em- empathy. You know, it really should be the case that everyone has empathy for everyone. I don't know why that's so hard. Yes, and I mean, I think you know, one way of looking at the book is is that it's kind of an exercise in trying to teach people this skill of empathy stretched out over the whole course of the book and all the yeah. principles that we're outlining, right? Because I think in the curiosity chapter, as you say, a big part of it is trying to give you that skill of empathy for unfamiliar, you know, people, unfamiliar groups, unfamiliar topics. But then when we get to the discussion of how you should treat sources of non-inclusive behavior, people who make mistakes in these conversations, again, there, you know, we argue, don't immediately cancel, condemn. I mean, obviously there are situations where someone has behaved egregiously and engaged in sort of bigotry and done terrible things where really canceling them probably is appropriate in those Mm -hmm, situations. mm -hmm. But, you know, there are mistakes that really all of us make in these conversations. Um, And because all of us make those mistakes, it's going to create a culture of much more learning and growth if we start from a place of treating people generously when they make those mistakes rather than immediately berating them. Um, You talk about the infamous letter to Harper's Magazine. I really... I struggled with this at the time. I imagine you did too, right? I mean, this, yes. like, so can we talk? Can you talk a bit about what that was and and why you bring it up in the book? Yeah. So the Harper's letter was uh, published in 2020. I think it was a couple of months after the Black Lives Matter protests started, actually, mm-hmm. over the summer. And it was essentially a letter, um, you know, condemning you know cancel culture, um, and it did it in a way that it sort of opened by saying, you know, look, there have been a lot of overdue calls for more, you know, racial justice and social equity in society. And that's great, you know, but, you know, all of that has led to all these other terrible things, you know, shaming and ostracism and an intolerance for disagreement. And, you know, and then it went on for the remainder of the letter to sort of talk about, you know, all the excesses of cancel culture. And, you know, you're right to say that, that we both, you know, my co-author and I struggled a little bit with this letter because, at one level, we agreed with some aspects of that letter, mm-hmm. really. I mean, as, as I just said to you, you know, two seconds ago, we ourselves have some issues with cancel culture and we would like to see a conversational culture that's a bit more open. And we have a whole chapter on respectful disagreement. So we agree that we want to see more respectful, good faith disagreement. What we didn't like so much about that letter was exactly that point that I said around how it was so quick to just sort of say in the first sentence or two, oh, yes, there's been these great calls for social justice, you know, but, and then, you know, the whole rest of the letter was Mm -hmm. all the terrible things that that has led to. And I think that's what rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, because it did come right on the heels of Black Lives Matter. Here's a movement that was finally gaining traction and speaking up after, you know, decades of police brutality against Black Americans. And, you know, finally people were listening and allies were, you know, flooding the streets in support of this historic movement. And then it kind of felt like slapping people down a little bit and kind of telling them to stop, you know, being so forthright in the way that they're going about making their demands. And, um, you know, I didn't love that aspect of the letter. And um, I think what we've also seen and had time to see is that there's a lot of exaggeration around who exactly was canceled in that regard. I mean, this, the, the, the idea that there are uh, somehow professors constantly being fired all over the country is just, you know, for, for this is like, 
patently not true. Right. And it becomes this like they, they dig and they find like one situation. And then, of course, they, um, uh, there's a great new podcast. I don't know if you've listened to it. Uh, if Books Can Kill. Uh, I have not. Sounds great. Yeah, it's Michael Hobbs uh, and uh, uh, his the the co-host Peter. I don't know his last name, uh, but they just they t- they basically find a book that was really popular and then they just take it apart and, and they did the coddling of the American mind. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in that, in very particular, in some of these instances where they talked about professors being canceled, they leave out the incredibly offensive thing that happened. And then, of course, this professor, did, you know, made millions of dollars with whatever else they did. And, you know, Joe Rogan is happily collecting his millions of dollars, saying all the things he says. Russell Brand is on a tour just saying one offensive thing after another. And it's like, all right. Yes. I don't think there's a big problem. This is what, when they talk about this with comedy, I will get interviewed on this all the time. Where it's like, you got to feel like they're putting the rain, like a stamp on you on comedy. I'm like, no, I don't feel that at all. It's fine. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's fine. I know. And I feel like in a way, the term, the whole term cancel culture is, is I wish there were a better term for what we're talking about here. Because yeah. as you say, I think the instances in which people genuinely get cancelled and they're sort of cast out into the wilderness, never to be heard from again, sort of scrounging around in dumpsters for food because they can't get a job. That's, you know, extremely rare for anyone to be in that position. And usually the people who are in that position probably deserved it because they did something really, really horrendous. I think what that, you know, doesn't negate, though, is... And the the area where I have a bit of a problem is the kind of tendency that I do see a lot of, which is kind of a more kind of berating, shaming kind of approach to people who make mistakes. So it's not necessarily cancelling them. It's not getting them fired so they can never, you know, be a professor again. But it's responding to, you know, relatively kind of minor mistakes with a pretty harsh, judgmental, berating kind of approach, whatever you want to call that. I don't know if you call that cancelling or you call that something else. That's the kind of thing that we have some objections to in our book. Yeah, and to be fair on the other side of it too, I'm married to a college professor and you work in that environment and, and uh, Dolly's a friend and, you know, who's quoting the book. Um, it is different now. And, 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 and the sort of the escalation that happens in terms of young people, like, let, let's take this, to, let's take this to like the president of the university when it probably should have been a conversation. It feels like right. a, a, a bit of a trend. And so, yeah, there, there's, there's other things, but I mean, we have just decades after decades of this same conversation going on. I think, uh, 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 in the the podcast, they end with some quote about young people and and, and you know them being rude and not to, and it was it was Socrates. So it's, it's like, <laughs> um, do you you have a, a section on apologizing and apologizing authentically? Uh, my favorite was the Mario Batelli uh, apology, which he apologizes and then he has to put a plug in for pizza dough cinnamon rolls. I'd like, did you, I don't remember this. I don't remember seeing this. And like, like, it seems unbelievable. It seems like an onion piece. Like it's not real. I know it's remarkable. So yeah, we had to, you know, check that from a few different sources online to make sure this thing really happened. But yeah, it is remarkable. And it, and it really did, uh, you know, yes, he sort of sends an, in his newsletter, an apology uh, for sexual harassment uh, in response to sexual harassment allegations. And then does a, you know, PS, here's my recipe for pizza dough cinnamon rolls. And so we give that example. First of all, let's start there. Yes. Yeah. The picture did not look appetizing, I must (laughs) say. 
But um, but yeah, we use that as an example of not really showing remorse for an apology. I mean, it's obvious uh, that he's not really showing remorse there. But the reason is because he's, you know, saying what kind of seemed like it was on its way to being a, a half passable apology. But then he just sort of undermined the whole thing by showing, well, I'm not really taking this seriously if I'm throwing a recipe in the mix. So none of us, I think, are likely to make errors that are that egregious but i think it is important to think when we're when we're trying to express remorse for someone am i doing it in a way that's actually genuinely displaying contrition to the other person or am i adding other little things into my apology that might seem to call into question whether i'm truly sorry and you take it a layer deeper i like where you say quote in real life an apology is usually a dialogue not a monologue that's that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's, and we talk in our work, we talk all about dialogues instead of monologues, but because there's, there's at least two parties and there's probably more. Yeah. Right. And, 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 you know, when you're crafting an apology, you know, we give people sort of here are the elements of an apology. So we have the, you know, four R's of um, recognition, responsibility, remorse, and redress. But, you know, what we wanted to make sure we said there is, you know, you can't just kind of mechanically go through those like a checklist and say, well, as long as I've, you know, crafted this nice apology that hits those four R's and I've, you know, given my little speech, I can then say, all right, I'm done. I've said my apology and now I'm kind of going to go back to my life now Um, because, you know, the other person will respond to that apology, presumably. And so you have to be able to kind of sit with the discomfort of having that dialogue and be resilient in sort of saying, well, you know, do they accept the apology? Uh, Are there other issues that they might have wanted to raise with you? Are there thoughts that they might have about steps that you can take in the future to repair the damage that you've done to them? And being open to sort of continuing that dialogue with them is an important element of that fourth R of redress, of actually showing that you're backing your apology with real action. Um, We we touched on this before, the the chapter you have called Be Generous to the Source. I, I was recalling... Uh, a time in a room where we were, we were, we were sort of trying to set norms and uh, someone brought the idea of assuming good intent. And another person really had a problem with that, with that concern. And so it was sort of like, okay, well, let's, let's listen to that. And because I, I think the spirit of it is what we're going for. And if the words don't quite, and you talk about this being a problem for you, like how, how do we answer the person who's like, you, what do you mean? How, how can you be? And you and Kenji crafted this response, which I really like, which quote, you should be an ally to the source of non-inclusive behavior because someday, someday the source will be you. Right. Yeah. And so this is a recognition of, you know, all of us are going to make mistakes in conversations yeah. about identity. It is inevitable. And so, you know, if we're creating a culture that sort of berates people for making mistakes as the first kind of impulsive response that we give, then, you know, ultimately we're going to be in the barrel of the gun on those issues as well. And that's not really a healthy conversational culture to try to create. But, you know, on the intention issue, um, you know, I agree. In fact, we sort of say, don't automatically assume that someone has bad intent. You know, if, you, if someone has said mm-hmm. something offensive or done something offensive, don't kind of jump down their throat and sort of accuse them of being malicious or, you know, Ill, you know, malintentioned in the way that they went about it. But that doesn't mean that you have to swing to the opposite extre- extreme and assume that they were well-intentioned. Right. I mean, right. maybe... You know, sometimes people do do things that have, you know, bad intent behind it. And so what we say is just, you know, don't assume intent either way. You know, you can ask a person, mm-hmm. you know, what did you mean? What did you mean by that? You know, where, where did that come from? Why did you say that? And then see what they have to say about their intentions. Because, you know, ultimately, 
they're going to know their intentions probably better than you're going to know their intentions. You can't necessarily read their mind just from their behavior. So it's better to focus more on the actual behavior and the impact of the behavior than it is to focus on trying to predict and analyze their mental state. Uh, And I, I very much like at the end of the book, what you talk about with regard to practice, because this is the thing that's lacking. This is the thing that's lacking in so many different domains is we don't practice this stuff. And in any in any sort of um, uh, top performer, whether it's a musician or a baseball player, a soccer player, like a, a, any sort of artist, they practice every day. They do the basic things they need to do to tune up to then work their craft. And yet in worlds of business and worlds of academia and all this, it's like, what are we doing to practice communicating with each other? Yeah. And this goes back to, you know, you mentioned Dolly Chug, um, social psychologist, colleague of ours at NYU. You know, she makes the point in her wonderful book, The Person You Mean to Be, that in this domain, we often don't apply a growth mindset. So when we, you know, make a mistake in these conversations, rather than saying, oh, well, you know, I'll practice, I'll get better next time. We think we shut down and we sort of say, well, this turns me into a racist or a sexist or a homophobe. And so I'm not even going to try getting better. And so it's just so important, I think, to try to carry over that growth mindset that you would apply when you're, you know, playing a piano or learning a language or whatever else you do and try to apply it to this context of getting better at these conversations. So if you find yourself, like the folks you mentioned, very confused about gender issues and thinking to yourself, you know, well, I just don't, I just don't get pronouns. I, I, I can't understand pronouns. Well, maybe add the word yet to that and say, well, you know, I, I, I don't understand pronouns yet. You know, but if I practice them, if I learn them, then maybe I can understand it and I can get better over time. Uh, one of the things from Dolly's book, too, that I always use when I talk to people about this is this idea of just think about it like you think about tech, which is you're you're upgrading your iPhone a few times a year, right? Yes. You recognize that that needs to be an upgrade. Perhaps you might need a bit of an upgrade in your understanding of the issue. <laughs> that shouldn't be a far reach. Yes, exactly. And hopefully you won't sort of completely shut down and need to replace it like you do with an iPhone every few years. So, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right, hopefully. All right. We always end the podcast with a yes and story. Do you have one for us? Sure. Uh, so when I accepted this job, actually, at the Meltzer Center for Diversity, Inclusion and Belonging at NYU, um, you know, initially I, I was very tempted to say no because I was planning a family at that point and we were in the midst of a process, my husband and I, surrogacy for our first child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought this is going to be too big a transition to go to this center. It's a small center. I'd be taking a lot of a lot of responsibility. But instead of doing that, I sort of negotiated to say, look, I can do this job, but I'm going to need a significant amount of parental leave pretty soon after I start this job. Mm-hmm. And so can we incorporate that, you know, acknowledgement into me taking this job? And so I was able to do that. And now here I am. So I'm glad I did. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that. What a practical yes and. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the book is called Say the Right Thing, How to Talk About Identity, Diversity and Justice. David Glasgow, thank you for coming on the pod. Well, thank you so much for having me. Getting to Yes and podcast is produced by the Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at the Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about the Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.